We're going to look at verse 1 to verse 16. So let's read our text. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be over the whole kingdom, and over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them, so that the king would suffer no loss. That is, so he wouldn't have to bail them out. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king. Establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as was his custom since early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplications before his God. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, That Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due respect for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard those words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. 
But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. The story of Daniel in the lion's den, you've heard it over and over again. If we were on on Jay Leno on The Tonight Show, and there's Jay Leno, and he's doing his typical uh, jaywalk, and he goes, okay, I'm going to say the first word, and you say the first word that comes to your mind. Daniel. Yeah, lion's den. That's the first thing that pops into your brain. It's one of the most familiar stories in all of the Bible. You know what people forget, though? Imagine, again, you're on Jay Leno. He's walking down the street, and he asks your typical Hollywood person, Hey, excuse me. You've heard of Daniel in the lion's den. Can you tell me why he winds up in the lion's den? How many do you think could answer his question? The typical person on the street, if you ask them the question, we know that he goes there, but why did he go there? Why is Daniel sentenced to die? Not because he did something wrong, but because he did something right. If you ask the typical person, hey, was OJ found innocent or guilty? What would they say? Innocent. Yeah, and then they would laugh just like you did. Because we live in a world where people are sometimes rewarded for evil behavior and they're sometimes punished for doing the right thing. Now, unlike you, I was a wicked and weird child growing up. And I was often punished not for doing what was right, but for doing what was wrong. The vast majority of things that happened to me happened to me for good reason. I got what I deserved. The Bible seems to indicate that it's not a bad thing, but it's a good thing when you suffer for righteousness' sake. When a government legalizes unrighteousness, criminalizes righteousness, terrorizes the innocent, it has the net effect of energizing God's judgment. We want justice, but sometimes we live in unjust circumstances. We, with unjust people in an unjust world, we may experience pockets of justice and moments of equity, but until Jesus returns and reigns in perfect righteousness, we ache for justice but rarely receive it. We live in a world where people don't pay their bills and then they get rewarded. We live in a world where people don't pay their bills and get rewarded. People who do pay their bills get punished. This isn't the world that you grew up in, is it? It's like, no, that's not what I was taught. I was taught that if I work hard and follow the rules and obey the rules, I am going to be rewarded. Jesus told his followers to accept Expect both suffering and persecution in John 15, 19, John 16, 2, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. It doesn't matter how many times.
times the Bible says expect suffering, expect persecution when it comes, we don't like it. The Bible tells us to trust the Lord. The Bible tells us to commit our souls to the Lord right from the start. The Bible tells us to realize that others suffer. The Bible says pray for those who suffer. In James chapter 5 verse 13 it says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. And then in Psalm 50 verse 15 it says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. I know what some of you are thinking. That's today. That's today. The Bible's encouraging me to call on him today. By the way, as we've been studying Daniel, there's a reoccurring theme. The reoccurring theme is how does belief and behavior hold up under pressure? How does Daniel hold up under pressure? In this chapter, Daniel is preferred by the king. He's persecuted by the world. He remains persistent in his integrity or witness. And in the end of the chapter, he'll be protected by God. But make no mistake about it, the day that Daniel went into the lion's den, he had no expectation that he would be anything other than eaten. How does Daniel hold up? What are the qualities necessary for the Christian to maintain godly character, to live a life of integrity in a wicked world? I'm going to point out just a couple of things to you in our text. In verse 3, you'll note of chapter 6, it says, Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because he had, number one, an extraordinary spirit, an excellent spirit, it says in verse 3. And then in verse 4, at the beginning, it says, So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could not find anything wrong. The reason being he was faithful to God in service to God. He had an extraordinary spirit. He was faithful to God. He's committed to personal purity. He's persistent in faith. And he has what we find in verse 10, a commitment to, a lifestyle of, a persistent commitment to prayer. For Daniel, the answer lies in a consistent and persistent attitude of trust and faith in the living God, a consistent and a persistent discipline of reading God's word, of obedience, of personal purity, and not just prayer, not just prayer, under pressure, but prayer in the good times, in the bad times. You know, I read the story this week of a young businessman who had risen to a, a position of some prominence and he fell in love with this well-known and highly respected actress. And for many months, he was her constant companion. He escorted her to all of the Hollywood functions, the balls and the, and the fundraisers, and eventually he decided he wanted to marry the girl. But before he did so, he hired a private detective agency to conduct a background investigation. And the task was 
given then to a special agent who had no knowledge of the identity of his client. And then he conducted the investigation. And when he completed his report, this is what he, he, he reported in part. Quote, Miss so-and-so has an excellent reputation. Her past is spotless. Her associates beyond reproach. The only hint of scandal is that in recent months, she's been seen in the company of a businessman with doubtful reputation. Yeah, the reason why that's funny and the reason why that's important is because we can read this particular passage and we can think about people that we know. And all the while, God's trying to speak to me and he's trying to speak to you. Look at verse 1 again. Preference. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole of Babylon from Daniel chapter 5 to Daniel chapter 6. You'll remember that Nebuchadnezzar had Nabonidus who had Belshazzar and now Cyrus the, the Persian and Darius the Mede have conquered Babylon and Daniel has gone through a laundry list of kings. He's been serving the Lord for a very, very long time. According to John Whitcomb, a satrap was a Persian ruler or overseer who had responsibility of, over a group of people or a province. And so when the Medes and the Persians absorbed Babylonia, they put in place their own bureaucracy. And in verse 2, look what it says, And over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them, so that the king would suffer no loss. Again, we've seen Daniel placed in a position of authority, responsibility. Why do you suppose that is? Why did the Persian king call Daniel at the age of perhaps between 85 and 90 years old, calls him out of retirement in order to be a leader? We know why. He has an extraordinary character, an extraordinary spirit in verse 3. He has always been faithful, verse 4. His commitment to personal purity, verse 6. His, excuse me, verse 4. His consistent walk with God. And so remember what we saw even in the last chapter as this Daniel is confronting the old king Belshazzar and he's saying, guess what? God's taking the kingdom from you tonight. Because the overseers would be accountable to Daniel. Why? So that the king would suffer no loss. Oh, you mean even in the ancient days, politicians cooked the books? Yes! By the way, is it ever a good idea to give anyone a lot of money with no accountability? Uh, the answer is no. And so Daniel gets placed in a position of authority because the king has the expectation that the king's goods and services shouldn't be ripped off. If everyone had to answer to Daniel, and think about this for just a moment, can Daniel be bribed? Can Daniel be bought? Can Daniel be manipulated? 
if you're dealing with a person who cannot be bribed, who cannot be bought, who cannot be manipulated, and you live in a world of bribery, graft, theft, stealing, greed, guess what? You're not going to like that person. Talk about no spin zone. Daniel is honest. He expects people to be stewards of the king provision. He expects people to exercise honesty. And Daniel complicates the lives of the sinister satraps, the corrupt politicians, the bloated bureaucrats. And he says, guess what? You are no longer allowed to feed your own little kingdom, but you will have a responsible government based on equity and justice and fairness. Daniel's a foreigner. Yes, he's from Judah. He's been in the king's courts since his youth. He's honest. And they hate him. And look at verse 3. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. Now think about this for just a moment. When you are talking about a bloated bureaucracy and corrupt politicians and corrupt leadership, does a selfless, honest person stick out like a sore thumb? By the way, if you had a business, do you want a person who's going to be there on time? who's going to take care of business, who's going to be honest and faithful and loyal and true. But a quick reading might cause you to miss the sarcasm. Look at verse 3 again. I want you to get this. Then this Daniel. It's not a term of endearment. The government officials hate him. They resent him. They're bitter towards him. They're envious of him. They're jealous of him. As a matter of fact, these are the type of people who live out the motto, jealousy is the tribute that mediocrity pays to genius. Do you know why they're jealous of him? And do you know why they hate him? Because he's a great man. He's an honest man. He's a godly man. He's an honorable man. If you meet a great, if you've ever met a great person in your life, ever, and you understand the characteristics of greatness, the characteristics of greatness are found in humility and commitment to godliness and an expectation of righteousness. And they hate him. By the way, there are three people in the Bible who are described as having an excellent spirit. And that extraordinary character, that excellent spirit, if I were to put it into two words, it would be the absence of evil. In other words, this extraordinary spirit, this excellent spirit, is a spirit of goodness, a a spirit of excellence. And the three people in the Bible that that describes, Joseph, Jonathan, Daniel. By the way, those three characters, Joseph, Jonathan, and Daniel, there's no flaws ever mentioned about them. We live in a world of nepotism and favoritism and cronyism, yet in God's world, in God's economy, God can raise up leaders even in the most corrupt 
cultures and even in the most gross governmental systems. And Daniel finds himself in a wicked world trying to honor God. And you know why that's important for you? Because that's exactly where many of you find yourself, huh? You find yourself in a wicked world and you get up every morning and you ask yourself this question, how can I honor God on the job? How can I honor job in my, God in my relationships? How can I honor God in the school? How can I honor God? By the way, what kind of a person are you on the job? Do you cooperate with your fellow workers? Are you jealous? Are you insecure? Are you angry? Are you bitter towards your boss? Do you harbor resentment towards your co-workers? Are you envious of their position? Would you, do, would you think that the, that the promotion of a particular person over you causes you great pain and sorrow and affront? Now think about this for just a moment. You would think with the appointment of someone like Daniel, shouldn't that cause cheer and celebration? When a person who is righteous, who loves God, and who exercises godliness is placed in a position of authority, you would expect celebration. But that's not what happens. Finally, we have a leader who will honor God and who will show godly character. But guess what? The moment that you decide to honor God and the moment that you decide to express godliness, guess what comes out of the woodwork? Adversaries and opponents. For every person who wants to conduct themselves in a way that is honest and godly and God-honoring, you'll find people who don't. So, the Babylonian bureaucrats are going to make every effort to get rid of Daniel. By the way, if for some reason, quite beyond me, our government decides to put in the front of the people of America a person who prays, a person who goes to church, a person who believes that God is real, a, a person who, forgive me for even saying this, a person who actually believes that the Bible is true, what do you think is going to happen? Do you believe this person is nuts? This person believes the Bible is true. This person believes that dinosaurs walked with human beings 4,000 years ago. This is a person who believes in the Ten Commandments. This is a person who wants to bring back prayer in school. This is a person who... Oh, I, this is not an endorsement for any candidate, by the way. Look in verse 4. The plot thickens. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. Look at this. But they could find no charge or fault. Now I want you to understand something. How long has he been in the government business? About 70 years. He probably first came to the king's court when he was 15 or 16 years old. 
He'd already been a seasoned servant for 10 years at the age of 26, 36, 46, 56, 66, 76, day in, day out, and night, serving, serving, serving. They check into every decision. They check into every derrick. A derrick, by the way, is a Persian dollar. They they go through every official transaction. They dog him. They follow him. They hound him. And they find nothing. What would they find about you? What if a person followed every conversation, every transaction, every computer conversation. When I became a chaplain for the FBI, they had to conduct a background check on me to get top secret clearance. They said to me, is there anything you want to tell us? <laughs> yeah, that would, that's exactly what I did. I said, I guess I'm going to have to tell you about my dad. I'm not saying he's in the mafia or anything like that, but on his income tax return under occupation, he writes, legitimate businessman. <laughs> and they said, we, kn we know about your dad. And I said, and you're still going to give me the job? <laughs> As they're sifting through Daniel's laundry, looking for stains, looking for dirt, looking for soiled circumstances. Usually when a person looks that hard, they will find something. But with Daniel, they found nothing. His character was exemplary. There was an old Scots preacher named Alexander McLaren. I know there's been a Scotsman behind this pulpit in the not-too-distant past. I can feel Scott all over the pulpit. <laughs> Alexander McLaren said, It's remarkable that a character of such beauty and consecration as Daniel's should be rooted and grow out of the court where Daniel was, for this court was half shamble and half pigsty. It was filled with luxury and sensuality and lust and self-seeking and idolatry and ruthless cruelty and the like. And in the middle of this, there grew the fair flower of character, pure and stainless by the acknowledgement of his enemies. In other words, we got nothing on Daniel. I know what some of you are thinking. Would you characterize Washington as corrupt? No, corrupt is not a good enough word. Would you characterize Washington as a cesspool? Let me help you understand something. It would be very difficult for me to describe the decadence and the wickedness of the court run by Darius. Extra-biblical information from historical records paints a picture of this monster, Darius. 
He was a selfish, self-absorbed, wicked man. But he seemed to have one redeeming quality. He was very pragmatic. He would find the best and the brightest, and he would use them for his own purposes. If Darius has one redeeming factor, you know what? It's he knows a gem when he has it. He knows treasure when he finds it. And that's what Daniel is. As a matter of fact, John C. Whitcomb has convincingly demonstrated from ancient documents that this Darius the Mede was a subordinate under the Persian emperor Cyrus the Great. And even though you don't need to know this, for centuries, critics have characterized the sixth chapter of Daniel as a historical hodgepodge of lies and half-truths. But guess what? Once again, the Babel, the the. the archaeologist Spade has proven once again that the Bible is true. You'll remember that Darius received the kingdom. If you look back in chapter 5, verse 31, it says, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. He receives it from Cyrus, who's called Cyrus the Great. And he's put over as king of the province of Babylonia. And then in verse 5, it says, then these men said, we shall not find any charge against Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. In other words, we don't have anything on Daniel. There's no dirt on Daniel. The only way that we're going to get him is if we get him, if we catch him in some sort of trap concerning his own religion. Now, think about this for just a moment. Do you understand what they're trying to do? The politicians and the bureaucrats want to use Daniel's integrity as a weapon against him. Does that sound familiar to you at all? You mean you're going to use honesty and character and a willingness to do what's right and use it against you? Look at verse 6. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said to him, King Darius, live forever. You know, I'm once again reminded at how sheer numbers often substitute for integrity. The vast majority, look at the text itself, the ruling elite thronged the king. Do you know what? The throng is, is indicative of a crowd. Because sometimes people will be more than happy to substitute numbers for integrity. Well, a a hundred people are for this and only one honest man is against it. Do you remember what it says in Psalms 2? Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. If the whole world wants to rebel against God, is that a good, good idea? It's still a bad idea. If the sum and the substance of the world stands in opposition to something that is honest and good and decent and right and the people throng the authorities that be. And that's exactly what they do to this king. And in verse 7 it says, 
All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or any man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. So, question. How do the wicked rulers plan to trap Daniel? They're going to use two tried and true weapons in Satan's arsenal. Flattery and falsehood. First, they lie to the king. By the way, did, look at verse 7, all the governors, the kings, and the administrators, the satraps, the counselors, and the advisors, did they all consult together to establish this royal statute? Is there one person that they've left out of the process? Was there one person who they decided to leave out to try, as they were putting forth this piece of legislation, the one person who they should have talked to, they refused to talk to, so guess what? They lied to the king. They didn't consult Daniel. By the way, if they had brought this petition to Daniel, what do you suppose Daniel would have said? Why should we enact a wicked piece of legislation that causes us to dishonor God? Why would we knowingly, thoughtfully legislate immorality? Why would we do that? Second, they flatter the king to get him to agree to the foolish, God-dishonoring law. They assure the king of his great wisdom, his great power, his exclusive wisdom, his exclusive power. In other words, they come to the king and they say, Other nations have had great leaders, but you, O king, are the greatest. Other nations have had wise leaders, but you, O king, are the wisest. And since no kingdom has ever had a wiser king, and since no kingdom has ever had a more gracious king, since no kingdom has ever had a, a, a more perfect king with perfect judgment, why should anyone even have to pray to the gods? It seems stupid and superfluous to even pray to the gods. Everyone should ask you. By the way, What's the net effect? Is he the great king with wisdom and power or is he a puppet in the hands of the manipulating bureaucrats? You know it. You're, you're not stupid. You know this. They're manipulating him. Any parent who's ever had a child knows how a child can come to you and go, has father really said Mom, Dad, is it, is, do children ever play parents against one another in order to get their way? They wouldn't do such a thing. No, that's exactly what they do. They're flattering him. And they're lying to him. Because they want to use him as a puppet, and I beg you. And I am begging you. And I don't normally beg you, but I, I beg you to learn the lesson of this text. Part of the lesson is this. All opposition to God, all opposition to God in the last analysis, 
all opposition to the will of God and all opposition to the word of God must be, listen carefully, considered dishonest. When you oppose God, when you oppose the word of God, when you oppose the will of God, when you oppose the will of God and the word of God, it must, it must always, always contain an element of deceit. Opposition to God can never be consistently honest. There will always be an element of deceit because it is based on the principles of self-deceit. There will always be an element of deceit because it is rooted in the lie that the truth is the the truth is exchanged for the lie. Listen carefully. The truth is rarely opposed. It's rarely denied. It's simply substituted. And there's another lesson. There's another principle. The conflict in Daniel's life, the conflict that will take him into the lion's den is an expression of a greater and a more eternal conflict. It's the conflict between dark and light. It's the conflict between good and evil. It's the conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. It's the conflict between right and wrong. It's the conflict between the word of God and the lies of Satan. It is the conflict in our country, but it's more than that. It's the conflict in every country. It's the conflict in your soul, and it's the conflict in every soul. It's the conflict that comes when Satan appears and he seeks to substitute the truth for a lie. And by the way, when we get to chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 9 and 10 and 11, particularly with a sharp focus in chapter 10, it's going to expand this conflict into a global circumstance and a future that is going to unfold. The lion pit, the lion pit is only a historical reminder of the roaring lion who goes around the earth seeking whom he may destroy. And the roaring lion is looking for you. And the roaring lion wants to eat you. And the roaring lion will get to you in direct proportion to your willingness to substitute the truth of God for the lies of Satan. And so here's the substitution. You don't really need God. You don't need the revelation of God. You don't need companionship and friendship with God. You don't need the word of God. You have everything you need apart from God. And that's why the New Testament tells us that that men everywhere ought to pray to petition the God of heaven. Men, the Bible says, ought always to pray to God, lifting holy hands to God. Because the moment you pray, you acknowledge dependence upon God and you suffer 
your own soul by describing to your soul that it is dependent on the very God of heaven for everything that happens to you. And in Daniel chapter 6, verse 8, it says, Now, O king, establish the decree. Sign the writing so that it can't be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. A couple of things I want to point out to you. Are the rulers, the leaders, and the bureaucrats selfish? Yeah. Are they envious? Yes. Are they jealous? Yes. Are they filled with individual resentments? Yes. Do they have their own little petty hatreds? Yes. But guess what? The leaders are willing to cross party aisles and close ranks and unite together in one supreme jealousy, in one supreme hatred, in order to destroy the servant of God. Hey, look, we can't agree about everything, but we can certainly agree Daniel has got to... Because if Daniel's gone, at least we can go forward with our own jealousy, with our own hatred, with our own wickedness. Again, ask this question. It's important to ask it. Why was Daniel such a threat? What was it about Daniel that was such a threat? It's because his honesty revealed their deceit. His integrity revealed their perversity. They sensed his righteous leadership would provide a serious setback for their sinful agenda. Honoring the God of the Bible, defending life, pursuing justice wasn't a part of the Babylonian platform. And make no mistake about it. Why are you such a threat? Why are you such a threat when you open up your Bible? Why are you so dangerous when you pray? What is it about your life in the presence of your wicked environment that creates such pain and drama to the people who are around you? Why is it that you are so viewed with suspicion by the people around you. I'm going to suggest something to you. That when you honor God, when you believe the Bible, when you believe the gospel, when you defend life, when you pursue justice, I guarantee you the words of Jesus will come true each and every time. If they hated me first, they'll hate you. If they persecuted me first, they'll persecute you. Daniel was a threat for the same reason that Jesus was a threat. Jesus upset the sensibilities of the leaders of his time. If the king 
why would the king, look at verse 9. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. I'm going to ask you the obvious. Why would a leader, why would a king be so foolish as to sign such an immoral, wicked law? Why would a king be so foolish as to sign this law? You have to understand something. Persian kings thought themselves infallible. They genuinely believed that they were incapable of making a mistake. They genuinely believed that they were divine, that they were incapable of making a mistake. And because they were divine and because they were incapable of making a mistake, no law could ever be revoked. No law could ever be changed. And if the king ever tried to change what he had written, it would be an admission of fault. It would be an admission of failure. It would be an admission of mistake, of fallibility, un thinkable to the general population. Does this sound at all familiar to anyone? Where do you go when you go to the highest court in the land? Once you've gone to the local court, the regional court, the state court, and you go to the highest court in the land, what is the highest court in the land? It's the Supreme Court. And why is it so hard to change a Supreme Court law? Would I be unfair, unkind, foolish to suggest that the court believes that they are incapable of making a mistake, of fault or failure or fallibility? You're all familiar with the Dred Scott decision in 1857 when they ruled that black people weren't exactly human. They weren't exactly property, but they weren't exactly human. Do you realize that that decision was never overturned? Ever? The court never came back and said, the court now finds black people fully, finally, equally, appropriately that they get to take their place alongside of humanity. Do you realize a constitutional amendment had to be signed granting them personhood? Why didn't the foolish king just have the courage to say, what does Daniel think about this proposed legislation? What does he think? What does Daniel think? Because here's what I've noticed about Daniel. He is wise and he is godly. Here is a man who wants to do that which is right towards the people. He wants to exercise courtesy, decency, honesty. Leaders want the Christian vote. But they don't want the Christian worldview. The leaders were fully conscious that the most important, the wisest, the godliest person was absent from the discussion. Daniel was godly. Daniel was honest. Daniel was loyal. But you know what the religious leaders, the bureaucratic leaders, the administrators, and the satraps knew? They knew, they knew that Daniel would not set aside his loyalty, his devotion for God to the loyalty of the king 
particularly if the king legislates immorality. The trap is set. The bait is in place. The leaders must have thought, <laughs> checkmate. Daniel, you are about to become a Judean lion snack. Here's Babylon's motto. Do unto others before they do it to you. Make no mistake about it, the king has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. But you need to understand something. Not only has he exchanged the truth of God for a lie, he's exchanged the truth of God for a lie and signed it into law. When you exchange the truth of God for a lie and then it becomes a way of life, you are in trouble. The king has fallen into the age-old trap. Do you know what he believes? He believes the lie that was spoken of in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. Do you remember what Satan said to Eve the day that she ate the forbidden fruit? You know, you will be like, you will be like God. And remember what the religious leaders, uh, the political leaders, the administrators, what are they saying to the king? Who needs God when we have you? When a citizen says to his or her government, who needs God when we have you? When a husband says to his wife, who needs God when I have you? When a wife says to her husband, who needs God when I have you? When parents say to their children, who needs God when I have you? When children say to their parents, who needs God when I have you? They're not honoring authority. They're perverting and distorting and misrepresenting authority. And look at verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, note that because it's important. Does he know that the lie has been, sub, that the truth has been substituted for a lie and it's been signed into law? Does he know it or does he not know it? Clearly he knows it. He went home and in his upper room with the windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as was his custom since his early days. The text draws full attention to the fact that Daniel knew that the king signed the petition. He knew that for the next 30 days, prayer to any god was illegal. Can you imagine prayer being illegal? Uh, oh yeah, that's right, it is. In the public school system, it wasn't made illegal for 30 days. It wasn't even made illegal for 30 months. It wasn't even made illegal for 30 years. In 1963, they made it illegal. But guess what? Kids still pray every day in school. 
I'm going to suggest to you, look what it says. And in his upper room with his windows open towards Jerusalem. Now, again, why were his windows open? That was his custom. He prayed openly and publicly. His life was transparent. There was nothing hidden or secret about what he was doing. And it says he, his windows are open toward Jerusalem. And do you know why he's praying towards Jerusalem? Where is he? He's in Babylon. Where is Jerusalem in relationship to Babylon? It's west. The window is open towards the west, towards Jerusalem. He's praying towards Jerusalem. And where, what's going on in Jerusalem? The city is destroyed and the temple is gone. But what else is going on in Jerusalem? The future is in Jerusalem. There's a promise that God has made concerning Jerusalem. Is God going to send the children of Israel back to Jerusalem? Is he going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem? Is he going to restore and make good all of the promises in the Jerusalem? He didn't open the windows to flaunt his faith, and he didn't do it to invite disaster. And he certainly didn't close the windows in an act of cowardice. He knelt down. Because that's the position of humility. And he didn't pray because it was a disaster. And he didn't pray because it was a crisis. He prayed because that's what he does. His life was a life of discipline and regularity. By the way, if you are the third governor in one of the largest provinces in the known world, do you think it's fair to say that Daniel had a pretty intense schedule? Do you think that he was very busy? Do you think he had a lot of official business? But Daniel finds the time to pray, not just once a day, not just twice a day, not just, he, he prays at least minimum three times a day. Three times a day, he abandons his schedule and cries out to God and worships God and he finds time to pray. Now. I want to point something out to you. Daniel studied the prophet Jeremiah. I'm going to suggest to you that he didn't just study the prophet Jeremiah. He memorized the prophet Jeremiah. Do you think Jeremiah read chapter 25 and chapter 29 of Jeremiah? Do you think the prophet Daniel read Jeremiah chapter 25 and chapter 29? The answer is yes, because he makes allusion to it. Daniel knows that the captivity is coming to a close. Daniel knows that the time of restoration is at hand. Daniel knows that the 70 years is about to go away and the remnant is going to return to the land. And under such circumstances, why in the world would he put his life on the line? I'm going to suggest something to you. Daniel knew and had every expectation to believe that in spite of the unjust law, that even if it meant that he was going to die, was that going to thwart the promises of God? Was that going to make the prophecy go away? Once again, 
Daniel, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before him, does he have lots of reasons to compromise? Look, the king isn't demanding idol worship. He's just simply, don't petition anyone but the king. Don't petition your God. And it's not, it's like it's forever. It's only for a month. He's not asking you to change for a year or for a lifetime. He's just asking you to not pray for a period of 30 days. What is the big deal? By the way, if the church stopped praying for 30 days, you know what I'm going to suggest to you? That the consequences would be startling and embarrassing. Because so many people don't pray anyway. Now imagine you were ordered, commanded, you cannot pray for the next 30 days. Does that make you want to pray? Maybe that's what I need to do. I just need to come, instead of keep urging you to pray, I mean, maybe I should command you not to. You know what? In other countries where saints learn to pray like Daniel, when they begin to pray like Daniel, guess what happens? Revival? No. Suffering and persecution. With equal degrees of wisdom and courage, Daniel saw through the wiles of his adversary. And you know what he does? He prays. Protected by the whole armor of God, he stands strong in the day of evil. And I want to suggest something to you, that all of his previous tests were only that. Tests, preparation for a final examination. Daniel doesn't see this trial as an excuse for faithlessness, but rather as the culmination of a life of faithfulness. You see, you may not understand what you're reading in the text, but that day when he went home to pray that day, he had the reasonable expectation that he would be placed into the lion's den. He had every reason to believe that he wouldn't live out the day. The lifestyle of the kingdom of God is not the lifestyle of the kingdom of darkness. So Daniel will pray, and he will praise. He does so in spite of the edict. He knows his commitment to the true and living God will result in a pronouncement of guilt and an inevitable visit to the lion's den. But you know what is particularly interesting to me about the lion's den? It's the one place that he will be able to worship and serve the Lord unmolested because do you think anyone's going to follow him in there? We're going to check up on you, Daniel, in that lion's den just to make sure you're not praying down there too. Verse 13, so they answered and said before the king, that Daniel, who's one of the captives from Judah, doesn't show respect for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but he makes his petition three times a day. It's the law. He's breaking the law. We have a law, and he's breaking the law. By the way, this is the exact argument that was used 
by the religious leaders to crucify Jesus. Remember John 19, 7? The Jews answered, we have a law, and according to our, our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. And you shouldn't do stuff like that. We have a law. You can't, you can't pretend to be the son of God. Well, what if he is the son of God? Doesn't matter, we have a law. But the prophets have wrote about the Messiah that he would come. The prophets said he would be the son of God. The prophets said that he would be born under the most unusual of circumstances of a virgin and he would live the life that we could never live and that he would do the most amazing things that he has a special relationship with God. What are we going to do when the real Messiah shows up? doesn't matter, we have a law. By the way, when you have an unjust, unrighteous law, a God-dishonoring law, you only have one alternative, and that's to continue to obey God and honor God. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with Daniel. Is that what it says? What does it say? With himself. By the way, do you think at this point Darius knows he's been had? That he's been sucker punched. By the way, all of this is going to catch up with the religious leaders before the end of the chapter. But that's going to be for next week. He was displeased with himself. And he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then the men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Why, ladies and gentlemen? Because you're infallible. You're incapable of making a mistake. What if the king at that point had just said, I'm not infallible. I am capable of making a mistake. And why does it seem reasonable to kill the one man who's willing to tell us the truth about ourselves? Do you remember a similar man who stood before a similar ruler? Tell me then, are you a king? I am a king. For this reason I came into the world, to testify to the world the truth. And remember what the king said? The ruler said, what is truth? Jesus came into the world to tell people the truth. How did they do with that? Daniel wants to tell the truth. I want you to pause for just a moment and ask yourself this question. You are most likely to 
substitute the truth of God for a lie when? I'm going to suggest something to you. It's when you're not following the Lord. It's, it's when you're not praying in a consistent way. It's when you're not tightly bound to the Lord. Abraham Lincoln, a former famous president, once wrote, I'm not bound to win, but I am bound to be true. I am not bound to succeed, but I am bound to live up to the light that I have. I must stand with anybody that stands right, stand with him while he is right, and part with him when he is wrong. Oh, by the way, what did they do to Abraham Lincoln? Yeah, they shot him in the head also. Daniel's life was marked by a consistent integrity. But don't make the mistake that one battle is the whole war. By the way, was Daniel faithful when he was a young man? Was Daniel faithful when he was a mature man? Was Daniel faithful when he was an old man? The chapter reminds us that faithful men and women seldom receive what they deserve. Whether criticism or honor, don't expect the world to stand up and cheer when you decide to honor God. Don't expect the world to stand up and cheer when you tell the truth. Don't expect honor from the unrighteous. But you know what? We will receive what's best from God. Even though we might be disappointed in his, God, in his timing, we will receive the best from God. And God will give us exactly what is necessary to honor him. I know that might be difficult for you to understand right now, because guess where Daniel's going? Where is he going? Does that seem fair? But we've already learned, haven't we? When you decide to do what's right, you won't always get what's right. We won't be able to handle human injustice. And we won't be able to handle divine goodness unless we're willing to walk in humility with God and pray to God and depend upon God and submit to God, that's when you will begin to at least begin to bear unfair criticism. And that's when you will begin to be able to wait for his promises. Someone has rightly remarked that few men, even good men, finish well. Joseph will finish well. Jonathan will finish well. Daniel is going to finish well. You know why? He refuses to substitute the lie for the truth. And by the way, you will finish well if you embrace the truth and reject the lie 
and walk in the wisdom of the word of God. We've got a whole nother half to go, but that's for next time. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you. Like Paul wrote long ago, Lord, we pray that we would not be foolish men. Lord, we pray that we would not substitute darkness for more darkness, unrighteousness for perversity. Lord, we pray that we would refuse to call wickedness good and unrighteousness righteousness. Lord, give us the ability to know right from wrong and good from evil so that we could honor you in the things that we say and in the things that we do. And Lord, I pray that like Daniel, we would begin well and continue well and finish well. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you to stand.